you to very, very carefully follow every word that I am about to utter. And this is serious. This is probably the most, one of the most serious things that's ever happened to this country. And I believe that I am the first man in the eastern section of this United States to have discovered it. It's a terrible plot, an awful thing that's beginning to happen. Now let me tell you exactly what happened. I come down to the station this morning. Now this, the station is a standard, ordinary sort of building. I mean, it's a, an office building, you know? There are all kinds of accountants, second-rate dentists, guys who do tax returns. There are Christmas tree salesmen, all sorts of ordinary businessmen up and down throughout this entire gigantic honeycomb of a building. It's right here on Broadway, right in the middle of Manhattan, right in the middle of these United States. Stable country. Country that believes in right things. Has God on its side. I mean, right... Okay, correct. We know exactly where we are. So I came down here this morning. I am an employee here. I'm a hard-working man. I do exactly what I am paid to do. I am here. I, I, I do it. I go through my song and dance. I tap dance. I do my routine. I play my nose flute. I pick up my pittance and I go. I don't bother anybody, right? I have not rubbed anyone's fur the wrong way, correct? Okay, all right. Now, we know where we stand. I come down to this place this morning. And I, I arrive in front of my office, this little hole in the wall that they have assigned to two or three of us. And I reach in my pocket and take out the key. I have a key, a, a regular Yale lock key. You know, the official kind of key that opens apartments on the east side and that. And I go up to this, this door and I try to put the key in. Nothing happens. I turn it over and I try it again. Nothing happens. So then I take out my other gigantic pile of keys that are all attached to this long chain that keep falling out of my pocket and breaking at the horn and hard art and all that. So I one by one I try each one knowing full well that, that none of these are the keys to this door. But a man can't believe such a thing can happen. This is a Saturday morning. The sun is shining. 
There are tourists walking up and down as though nothing is happening right there on Times Square. Say, now listen carefully. This has to do with you, not me, you, all of us. And so I'm beginning to work around with this lock, and I suddenly, it, it dawns on me, I can't get in the office, I'm locked out. I call the, the, the air conditioning, the, the guys who, who maintain the, none of them can get in. The doors are all locked. And none of their keys work. <laughs> this is on Saturday morning in this country, America. I can't get in the office. Everything, all, all the things I own, all the important things are locked in that office now. My nose flute, my commercials, what else is there in my life? So I come up to the studio here and all these people here are totally unconcerned, not knowing what is occurring. Now I'd like to point out just exactly what this means. I have a suspicion that this has happened. It, 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 it's, it's an awful thought. But do you realize this town is vulnerable? We are wide open on Saturday mornings. All you poor clowns are sitting out in Darien. You poor idiots are sitting on your duffs out there in New Rochelle, not knowing nothing about what's going on in your office on a Saturday morning. And I'm, I'm inquiring around here, and I asked the elevator operator. I said, what, 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 what? Was, was there anybody up here? He says, why, yes, a short, stout man wearing a dark overcoat with a velvet collar appeared, carrying a thin briefcase and a large ring of keys. He left, he said, within ten minutes. It could very well be possible that this man, this short, stout man, is only one of a large phalanx of short, stout men bearing briefcases who have appeared all over Manhattan. Do you realize what this could do to this country if Monday morning two and a half million men descend upon Manhattan with the wrong keys? What is the first assumption you make when, you're, when your key doesn't work in the lock? Of course, you know what the first thing that you think of in this, in this town. You arrive at your office, you try the key, you immediately get in the elevator, go down and head for the unemployment office. That's all there is to do. Either that or you go right back home on the 1037 and you arrive back in, in Darien. You go home and you say, I left my keys. Where are my keys? I could see this beautiful scene of the guy arriving home. He says, hey, uh, uh, hey, Mabel, I left my keys for crying out loud. It's about 11 o'clock now. I'm, uh, <laughs> and, and his wife says, what do you mean you left your keys? You don't have, there are no keys here. I, I must have taken the wrong keys, Mabel. Come on now, give me them keys. Hurry up. I left them on the, on the buffet for crying out loud. Hurry up. And she goes in and rustles through the buffet. She says, there's a couple of keys to the garage here. She says, well, no, come on, the keys. Give me the keys quick. These keys don't work. These are the only keys you've had, Charles. And then the panic begins to hit Charlie. He sits down and says, why didn't they have the guts to tell me? Why didn't they tell me, me? Why didn't they tell you? Look, I have a suspicion. What with the abstract life that we're all involved in, the paper life, the life of deep, abject fear that most of us live in, and, and it's a fear, it's not a fear really of bombs. It's not a fear of the decline of Western civilization. Let me tell you, in spite of what the writers write about, it is not a fear of, 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 the, of the great threat of rising imperialism in the East. None of these things bother the average guy. Oh, no. It's the terrible sneaking suspicion that one day they're going to discover what a phonus balonus he really is, and not even with so much as the, to, to, to even to dignify it. With a pink slip, blue slip, or green slip, they merely just change the lock. That's all there is to it, and he'll know exactly why they did it. 
And I, I, I fully believe that this country could be invaded, could be disrupted, completely destroyed. For, for three whole days, no one would even, would even find it out because no one would have the guts to say anything to the next guy. They locked me out of the office. The only thing that would happen would be by Wednesday, there would be 17 and a half million guys lined up in front of the unemployment office on 42nd Street, all of them pretending that, you know, I mean, carrying on with the big front, until somebody by about 3 o'clock in the afternoon would discover that the unemployment guys have been locked out, and they are in the line, too. And by then, of course, uh, uh, someone would appear on the radio and say, it's all over. It is all over. We have the keys now. And to the right thinkers in the audience, to the right thinkers in this big country of ours, this wonderful country which is now ours, to the right thinkers will go the right keys. Apply. Signed the commissar. So I, I believe that George Orwell was wrong. Seriously. It's not going to be the way Orwell said it was. It's not going to even be the way Huxley said it was. <laughs> Oh, this could be happening right now. You better call your office this very minute. You had better call your office this very minute because I am locked out. I have no commercials. I have nothing, nothing. I stand before you, a man not only shorn of his commercials and his nose flute, but shorn of his dignity, too. And all I can say is to my fellow Americans for crying out loud, why didn't we think of this? Well, I guess in a way we had it coming to us. I mean, in a sense, we did. We, we abdicated all along the line, each one of us. I mean, I, I, I'll admit, I'll admit, I, I never, I never realized the value. I can just see. Do you realize that I'm locked out of the men's room? Huh. You know what this can result in. <laughs> I don't have to go any further with that. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people just wait and see Monday. Don't be, don't be out there laughing. Don't laugh at all. Because the time is going to come, say about three o'clock Monday afternoon, you're going to remember where you heard it first. Not on Winchell's program or on Barry Gray. Edward R. Murrow didn't even note, note that it was happening. So concerned was he over the Middle Eastern crisis. Right here in our very midst. Well, I think we had it coming. I mean, I, I'm walking. I mean, the, the little the signs are there. The, the, the signs are there, really. They've been all around us for centuries. This morning, I'm walking along, and I, I come to... I'm on 7th Avenue, and I'm about maybe at 52nd, 53rd Street, something like that, on 7th Avenue. And there is a typical American family group milling around. They have come in from Millfield, New Jersey, or Milling Pond, Connecticut. And they have arrived, and they are sort of standing on the corner there, and there's a short, stout father type. A real father. This guy was born with a, with a, with a salt and pepper mustache. His mother had a difficult time. He was born with a, with a salt and pepper mustache. He's standing there, and he's kind of milling. He's pear-shaped, and his wife is a sort of pear-shaped wife. And they're milling, and they're, they had this look on the face of, well, where shall we go now? What are we going to do? We are in the big city now. This is what we've come for. Now where to? Will it be the Roxy to see the Rockettes? Shall we go down to Rockefeller Center and just watch the flags flop? Or shall we, you know, you know this, this thing. Well, here we are. Now what? And they're standing around. A mother's looking west and he's looking east. And there are two gawky, gangling kids of the modern progressive school type kids. You know, you can always tell the way the girl brushes her hair and the kind of blazer that the kid wears. They're much better dressed than the parents. 
All the dough has been invested in these two striplings. And the two of them were standing there. <laughs> and, and I heard this. I'm going to tell you exactly what I heard. Father has said, obviously, what he wants to do. Mother has countermanded what he wants to do. She has something else. They're both standing there. And this tall, brushed girl, who already, at the age of 13, has a little set of letters above her head that say, Betrothed. You know, you can just see her looking right out of the Herald Trib Society page. And she says to mother and father with a commanding voice, that's the sad part of it, she says, let's have a discussion. Let's have a discussion. This is the a democratic discussion, you see. This is the ideal of all the Spocks, all the parent magazines, 17, Zip, Pip, Quick, all the rest of them, that whenever things are going wrong, have a discussion. Rely on the judgment of these idiotic 13-year-olders. And in the end, give in to them, you see, through a long series of illogical arguments. And so I'm walking there, and, and this chick, this 13-year-older, says, let's have a discussion. And poor father, I could see he just sort of wilted a little bit, and mother wilted a little bit, and I knew what the discussion was going to result in. And it's no wonder we've lost our keys. It is no wonder we have lost, we have lost the combination to the lock. <laughs> and and, and I, I go, you know, about ten minutes before that, I'm, I'm walking past Carnegie Hall. And here is a real Shraft lady standing out. This is, by the way, the, the gathering place for Shraft ladies on Saturday afternoons and Saturday nights. And they're all standing out there. And there's one wearing, you know, the kind of fur wrap, the little fur wrap that looks like a kind of a brownish fur fur wrap that, that kind of goes halfway around the shoulders and hangs down to about the shoulder blades. You know, this little kind of, what do they call those things? These, these are old lady type. Is that a stole? Well, she's got this thing around her, and she's wearing this little pot turned upside down on her head. You know, a real shrafty hat. And, and she's standing there, and, and this is exactly what happened. I'm going, to, I'm going to outline to you why we have lost our keys. We have lost the combination. And <laughs> I'm walking past her, paying absolutely no attention to this old gal, and she's paying no attention to me, and all of a sudden she's, oh, for heaven's sakes, for pity's sakes. And I turned, you know, I thought she was saying something to me. And she she tore out on the sidewalk and kind of went into an Immelman turn, you know, a slow looping turn, made a turn to the right. And there, another one who looked exactly like her came darting out of a doorway, and they both clasped each other. She says, Emily, for pity's sakes, I've been waiting for a dog's age. Where have you been? And Emily says, right here in the doorway, Clara. And they were both clinging to each other. And I thought, oh, what a touching scene. And all of a sudden, Emily says, Clara, for crying out loud, let's grab a hot dog and get in line. <laughs> and the two of them went into Needix right there next to Carnegie. Let's grab a hot dog. It's no wonder we've lost our keys. Uh, speaking of the lost, this is WOR AM and FM New York. Friendly, reliable, sober, industrious, and vaguely confused. Now, let's beat out a message via TomTom. -tom. Isolate light. Isolate light. Precisely right. Precisely right. Crisp refresher. Crisp refresher. Valentine, Valentine, dear. To be crisp, a beer must be isolated. 
Oh, that moved. That was pretty good, wasn't it? All right, George, we ought to be locked out all our lives. Actually, I, I think, that, you know, it's a funny thing. I'd like to make a point here. Now, don't don't be too frightened. It is quite possible you are locked out. Now, you have all of Saturday afternoon, you have all of Sunday morning and Sunday evening to contemplate it. Now, there's another side to this thing. It isn't as bad as it seems. In fact, it is much better than it seems. I have a suspicion that the best thing that could happen to 90% of the males in this country would be to be locked out. I mean, I'm serious about that. I mean, I know a whole lot of guys who, if they were relieved of the responsibility of telling the boss what to do with his key, if they were relieved of the responsibility of quitting, they would sneak back home on the 532 with this fantastic sense of relief. And, and of course, they would be weeping and pretending that it was a terrible thing. <laughs> they would arrive home and they would go through all the motions. And then, then by Tuesday morning, they would awake and they'd notice that sun's shining out there and they would see, they'd hear a few of the birds whistling. And they would not even, it's, it's, it's a surprising thing how many of us go through our lives bound and shackled and held down by enormous chains, which we think, of course, are terribly important and necessary to our existence. Which, as in the matter of fact, are, are, are really the one agent that is preventing us from existing, from being really true and real, from being what we want to be. And, and uh, I, I can see, I, I would like to know, I'd just like to know how many guys are sitting out there listening to this now. And their wives, of course, uh, think this is a ridiculous thing. What do you mean Charles would, <laughs> why it would be terrible if Charles was locked out of the agency. I, I just wonder how many guys have this sneaking thing deep inside of them who are saying oh boy oh would that be great oh come on admit it you know it would be great because a lot of things would happen first of all the, 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 I think one of the things that has beginning has begun to worry many people in this country is the advancing the, the constantly advancing effeminization of the male uh, it's really not it's it, it's really not as simple as that that the that the advancing masculization of the female has in so creating a new atmosphere has in a sense removed some of the masculinity from the male in short a male is only masculine when compared to a female and her degree of femininity it's not that the women have lost femaleness they have lost femininity it's not that the males have lost maleness they have lost masculinity and so, uh, as you as you look around, you see all the all the stage shows, almost all of the movies today, uh, feature the the new stars who have come up since about 1949 or 50 are all vaguely feminine. Uh, that is to say, they're not outwardly completely masculine. Say in the Spencer Tracy mold of a previous era, you see, t t total masculine, you know, or or in the in the mold of say the Clark Gables, or a mold of the of the Victor McLaughlins. Of the past. I mean, this was a, a complete masculine man. And so gradually there has been a change, a, a slight coloring of it all. And I could just see this little man you, uh, who, who, whose sole function in life has been to supply an endless stream of dollars for the, quote, activities of the family. The station wagons that are coming and going and the kids that are going to this school and that school. The, the, the wife who's going to this club and that club and the whole bit. His sole function has been to supply this endless stream. Funny thing the elevator operator said today, I'm coming in, and he said it right out of the blue. Funny, you know, Saturday mornings, I think, are very valuable times for consulting your navel.
Really? Because honestly, a lot of the hoopla and a lot of the a lot of the paper bag uh, popping and a lot of the uh, paper doll cutting out has ceased, you know, in these places. And you begin to see things for what they are. The file cabinets look gray and deserted and a little menacing and and very faceless. They look okay, you know, when there's a lot of girls standing in front of them, moving the drawers up and down. But boy, they look something else again when you see them with nobody. They just sit there waiting. And they contain all of our lives, all of ours, right there, packed away in alphabetical order, cross-indexed. And so I come in here, you know, and I, I'm, I'm very quietly standing in the elevator with my cup of lukewarm coffee. And the elevator operator suddenly turns to me and says, I don't know what it's about. I said, what? Huh? Huh? What? Said, I don't know. I, I figure some of these guys are going to come in here on Judgment Day. I said, what? <laughs> what? And then I'm beginning to wait. Judgment Day. I hear, the, I hear the, the great bugles blowing and the gong. And I wonder how suddenly, Judgment Day. And I'm waking out of my, my lethargy. I said, Judgment Day? What, 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 what do you mean Judgment Day? He said, well, I'll tell you. He says, you know, there are some guys, I've been riding this elevator now for 20 years. There are some guys who come into this office seven days a week into this building. They come in at seven o'clock in the morning. They don't leave until 10 o'clock at night. And they do this seven days. They've been doing it now for 20 years. I don't know how long they were doing it before I came here and how long they're going to do it after I leave. They're going to come in on Judgment Day. Wonder what these guys get out of life. And I had no answer. Absolutely no answer. And then I began to think, you know, I get off the elevator and I walk back with my key held hopefully in my hand. And I try it in the door and I'm locked out. And I'm struggling around. There's the first moment of panic and then there's the great moment of relief. And I turn around. I'm walking away from the door. Okay. And it suddenly occurred to me that, that, that these guys, that most of these guys who spend their lives going up and down elevators and shuffling papers back and forth are, are running as hard as they can, just as wildly and as hard as they can from something else. They're not running to something. They're running away from something. And they're running away from, from this involvement with mankind and with the human being, with the family, with the people. Because you're not involved with people at all when you're involved with file cabinets and papers and deals. That's totally abstract. And I'm, I'm going up the stairway then. I try the men's room. I'm locked out. I'm wandering around there and I'm, I'm disenfranchised. And I say, well, you know, maybe, 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 maybe the bugles are getting ready to blow. Who knows? And, and, and I suspect in some ways that, that they might be. Uh, like today, I'm walking. These are, these are all things that happened to me today. Exactly. All in one line. Just lined right up. I'm walking along. I, I know, no, Oh, I, maybe I passed one block after I heard Emily talking to Clara. And I'm in the next block, and I'm waiting for a light. And a cab pulls up. And I'm suddenly reminded of an incident that occurred to me four or five, maybe three or six or nine days ago. Are you a collector of, of cab companies' names? You know, don't fall into the idea that all cabs are just cabs. And, and don't, don't begin to believe that they're all named either Yellow or Checker. They are not. That there are thousands of cabs in this country, in, right here in this, in this city, that have a little red, a little red series of block letters on the back doors that tell the name of the cab company. Now, how this works is that if you're a cab company owner, and, uh, and say you own, uh, a hundred cabs, well, for tax purposes, what these guys do is split their company up into about 30 different little companies, and each company owns three cabs, you see. 
it's kind of a corporation tax deal, and, and actually it's one big company, but there are 30 little corporations, and each one has to have a name that has to be put on the outside of the cab. And so they, they come up with some great names. I'm telling you, some of the greatest names. For example, there is the Money Cab Company. I mean, how's that for a guy getting right down to the basic of it all? I saw this when I, I by George, there's the Money Cab Company. And, and one day I get in the cab and it says Friendly Cab Company. And I get in and there's this little gnarled cab driver sitting up there in the front seat. And he's And you know, this kind of guy who, who, who is, who has a constant stream, an untapped stream of obscenity. Just running right through him like a like a fountain, and it bubbles out of his ears and out of his eyes and out of his. Yeah, and there's hate, little little lines of hate extending from him, and it's as though he has he has thorns growing out all over him, and there are little filaments reaching out that that have poisonous tentacles on the. And I arrive at the end of my trip. <laughs> I had the guy, I had the guy his tip. Here I've gone, you know, it's getting to the point now. You know all those little cab driver tricks. For example, giving you your change in all dimes. The reason this is done, of course, so that you can't give 15 cent tips. So if you get a, a, a 40 cent cab ride, he'll give you your change in all dimes. You can't give him a dime tip. You wind up giving him a 50% tip, you know, 20 cents for a block. And, and so <laughs> he tries this routine and I reach in my pocket and I got a nickel. So uh, here, here we've gone this little way. We've gone about four blocks or something like that. And I give him 15 cents, uh, which is a standard tip for this little... <laughs> he looks at me like that. And he pow, he slams the door. And there goes the friendly cab company off in the distance. <laughs> then there was another great moment that happened to me. I get in a cab on Madison Avenue the other day. And it's one of those, those terrible moments when, when we turn left, we get into a crosstown street and every truck, every bicycle, every motor scooter, 14,000 cabs, 95 policemen, seven fire trucks, everything is converged on us. We are completely trapped. And I am sitting there and all I can hear is the sound of muffled curses around me and the, and the tick of the meter. My lifeblood is dripping out of me on the floor. Like that, you see. I'm sitting there for about 40 minutes, it seemed, and the smoke is rising and the steam, and, and it's it's hot. You know, it's really hot already there, you know. It's hot. You can see the city. It, it might as well be in mid-August, steaming. And finally, it's off for crying out loud. And I get out of the cab, and by now I run up a bill of a buck. So I give the guy a dollar and a quarter, and I slam the door, and I look at the... And there it is, the name on the door, and I'm telling you this happened to me. Listen to this. The Hopeless Cab Company. 